The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the community. This created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Hi, everybody, and uh, welcome to the uh, Long Room Hub and to the Trinity Early Modern History Seminar. I'm really delighted today to be able to welcome the team from the ERC-funded Forms of Labour project, which is a five-year project hosted by Exeter University. And today we have with us most of the team, actually. So um, Professor Jane Whittle, who's the project PI, um, Dr. Mark Halewood, who's a co-investigator, um, Taylor O'Quinn and Hannah Robb, um, who are postdoctoral fellows on the on the project, and I'll introduce everyone individually. Um, so Jane um, probably doesn't really need any introduction, but Jane's a historian of rural England in the late medieval and early modern period, and works on th themes like economic development, consumption, gender, um, popular protest, and work. And she's published extensively on these themes, uh, including my own personal favourite with, with, with Elizabeth Griffiths, um, consumption and gender in seventeenth century. Um, a household, which looked at household accounts to examine some of those, those themes. And before this project, Jane led its precursor, which was Women's Work in Rural England, which was funded by Leverhulme. Um, and that produced some very outstanding research, including articles in Past and Present and the Economic History Review on themes, including the gender division of labour and the nature of domestic work. Um, Mark Halewood um, is a lecturer in history at the University of Bristol and works on the social history of England, um, especially um, the lives of ordinary men and women. And most early modernists are probably familiar with Mark's really excellent work on drinking and alehouses and his contributions to the ever popular early modern history blog, um, The Many-Headed Monster, which I think a lot of us uh, use in teaching very regularly. Uh, and Mark um, worked and published with Jane on the Leverhulme project and is now a co-investigator um, on this, this ERC work. Um, Taylor um, O'Quinn um, is a postdoctoral fellow on the project, um, focused on activities, uh, work activities recorded in the quarter sessions, depositions, and the enforcement of labour law. Um, Taylor is interested in work, play, and festivity and carnival, and did his PhD at the University of uh, Bristol with uh, Mark Hillwood, I think. Um, and I think we can claim Taylor as a food historian as well, because his dissertation was called When the Pancake Bells bell rings, which is very, very interesting. Um, and it's about Shrove Tuesday and carnival time in, in medieval and early modern Britain. Um, and Hannah, um, Hannah Robb works on social and cultural history of credit in the courts, um, 1400 to 1600. And her research has been supported by the Poston Fellowship, which she held at um, the Institute of Historical Research and the University of Manchester, where she expanded her doctoral thesis to look at arbitration and debt litigation in the church courts of Yorkshire. And just to very briefly introduce the Forms of Labour project, this project aims to create a new history of work in the pre-industrial economy um, in this period, of course, when waged work becomes the dominant form of labour in, in much of Western Europe. 
The focus is on women and servants, I think, predominantly. So workers who have been marginalized in the historiography, but were, of course, central to the development of the of the economy. And by doing this, it hopes to shed light on contemporary tensions in the in the labor market. And I know that um, today the presentation will look at some data from the the um, earlier project and some new data from from this um, project on nor the north of England, which hasn't been presented before. So we're really excited to uh, to hear that. And as ever, uh, put your questions in the Q&A section, please, for, for afterwards. So I'll hand over to, to Jane now. Thank you very much. Thank you, Susan. Um, yeah, it's a real pleasure to be able to um, present my work here. Um, and it's um, exciting for us because it's the first outing for our new data from a project. So, um, yeah, that's uh, so it's, yeah, great to be here. So just to give you a, a, a bit of a plan about um, what I'm going to be talking about today. So um, I'm going to start off by putting the context of um, the parts of a project I'm talking about today, the experience of work um, within the larger ERC project that we're working on at the moment. Um, and then I'm going to talk a bit about the methodology um, behind it. So the work task approach to looking at the history of work and how that relates to the earlier women's work project. Um, and then the second half of the paper will be um, looking at the new data we've got. Um, so going through um, various aspects that we can look at. So, you know, an overview, but also regional difference, looking at particular tasks and whether they were done by men or women, the location of work and how work tasks relate to occupations. Um, and I'll finish up by um, talking a bit about the strengths and weaknesses of this as an approach to the history of work. So, um, yeah, so today I'm talking to you about the experience of work, and that's one of the three, three themes in um, the larger ERC project. Um, so this diagram here um, shows it as a, a kind of Venn diagram. It all neatly fits together. Of course, it's not quite like that in reality, but it's uh, uh, how we like to think about it. So, um, so the experience of work... Um, is based around a database of work tasks, and um, it will result in a book of that title um, that we're actually um, working on right now. So um, we're writing that book this year. Um, but it sits together with two other themes in the bigger project. The other one, um, so one is about rethinking women's work, which is looking particularly at, at how historians have approached women's work as a topic and the major debates um, within women's work, um, within the history of women's work. And the um, third theme looks at um, work and freedom. So um, that's more focused around, um, for instance, the labor laws, contracts, um, how people are employed. Um, so that's looking at some of the aspects of work that don't come up um, so prominently in the um, work task approach. So as a whole, it's hope that this kind of balances out to, um, as Susan was saying, the, the, the kind of overarching aim of the project is to create a new history of work and one that really um, places uh, women and servants, young people um, in the our idea of what work consisted of in the early modern period leading up to the Industrial Revolution. 
So, um, so today I'm talking to you about the experience of work and the work task approach. So why do we call it the experience of work? Well, really, we want to understand what women's and men's working lives were like. So we don't just want to sort of look at sectors of the economy or um, particular industries, but we want to understand what it was like to work in early modern England. So what types of tasks did people do and what range of different tasks? Um, where did they work and who with? When did they work? So how did work vary during the day, the week and the year? And it's an idea that work is much more than just an occupation or, or paid employment, particularly in, in this historical period. Um, it's an essential element of people's everyday life. Um, and it's a building block of the economy. I mean, it's almost like we're going down to the, the kind of smallest molecule we can get to in the economy in this period, and that is the work task. Um, so our unit of analysis is um, what we call a work task. So that's evidence of a particular person undertaking a particular work activity. Evidence of these work tasks is collected from various types of legal documents. So depositions, examinations, reports, anything that describes what a person was doing when a crime or a misdemeanor or an accident happened. And these can be analyzed quantitatively um, in the database to deduce typical work patterns. But we also use the evidence qualitatively. I mean, it's very rich, rich evidence. Um, but I think the quantitative element is important um, because we need to be or move beyond kind of anecdotes of things people did to, to understanding what was what was typical in this period. So to give you an example of, of what this looks like. Um, so um, here's a, a particular court deposition. So this is from the church courts and it's a, a marriage dispute. Um, so I'll just read this out and then I'll, I'll tell you how we're kind of pulling evidence from cases like this. So in 1561, James Goodridge, a 48-year-old tailor from the village of Berry Pomeroy in Devon, came to the church courts and gave evidence about a disputed marriage contract between William Jane and Alice Miller. Alice was the daughter of Otis Miller, a yeoman farmer also resident in Berry Pomeroy. James Goodridge described how, in the week before Easter, Alice had asked his wife to send a message to William to meet her the next day by the village well while she washed clothes. At eight o'clock that morning, Clara, who was a servant in the Miller household, went to the well to fill a pot of water. Finding William there, she passed news on to Alice. And immediately the said Alice Miller came down unto the well and brought clothes to washing. And then the said William Jane and Alice Miller talked by the well together for about two hours. Then William and Alice went un into James Goodridge's shop, where this deponent doth keep his occupation being a tailor, at which place this deponent's wife sat by the entry of the same shop a sewing. William Jane asked Goodrich's wife to call James and his son George, um, but instead James brought one Richard Irish, who was also present in the house. Together they witnessed Alice and William exchanging marriage vows. 
So this is a kind of, um, well, I don't know if there is a typical church court case, but there are many cases like this recorded in the church courts where you get this little narrative and this vignette of people's lives. Um, so in the past, people have used these to, to study, for instance, marriage or defamation or whatever. Um, but here we're just pulling out the work tasks. So in this little um, excerpt, there are, there are three work tasks recorded. So there's um, Alice Miller washing clothes by the well. There's Clara collecting water. And there's um, James Goodridge's wife who's sewing. Um, so those are the three work tasks. Interestingly, none of the men, despite the fact they're given occupational descriptors, are actually described doing any work. Um, so we can't we can't include them. Um, but that's just to give you a taste of um, of what it's what it's like um, to collect this data. Now, when you're dealing with evidence like that, you need to have a clear idea about what you are collecting. So it's very important to, to kind of think about what work actually is and what definition of work you're using. And I think quite a lot of um, economic history has taken the nature of work to be self-evident. And um, we were always quite clear that um, it wasn't self-evident, but you have to really carefully think about uh, what it is and that we were including um, unpaid work done within the household as a type of work. Um, so um, we're relying on a definition that was provided by the economist Margaret Reed in her book written in the 1930s, The Economics of Household Production. And she argued that any unpaid activity that could be replaced with paid work or purchased goods should be considered part of the economy and thus work. Um, and this is a definition that's now actually used by the UN when it's um, providing advice about calculating um, GNP. So this is quite a widely accepted definition of work. Um, and it's very useful because it allows you to record sort of the types of work activities you find in small farming households without having to kind of fuss over, was this for subsistence or was this for the market? Um, you don't really need to think about that. You can just record it as work. Um, in terms of when we're actually collecting the data, we have some more caveats that, that we've um, introduced to, to kind of make the um, methodology workable. So, um, so it has to be a specific work task carried out by a specific person. So it can't just kind of say that they were working. It has to be more detailed than that. Um, and it has to be clear who's actually carrying the work out. Um, this can sometimes be problematic because you get kind of statements in this period where, for instance, a farmer will say, um, it, perhaps in a, in a tithe dispute, he might say, well, I sowed that field with oats that year. Um, and he doesn't actually mean that he personally went out and sowed the field with oats. He means that he made the decision that that was what would be grown in that field. Um, so we're being more specific than that. It has to be really quite clear that this worker has actually carried out this task. Um, and we also exclude um, crimes from our list of work tasks, um, not because we don't think, I mean, clearly crime is, can be a form of work, 
Um, it, it generates people's um, way of making a living, um, but it would just swamp the database for crimes because we're collecting um, evidence from court cases. Um, and for similar reasons, we exclude legal administrative work um, because it would just um, it'd take an enormous amount of time to collect all that evidence and then you'd end up with a very unbalanced um, data set. So um, just to say a bit more about this, this methodology. So it was really kind of developed as an alternative to the existing methods. So existing ways of approaching work in this period um, take normally kind of one of three approaches. So, so one is to rely on occupational descriptions. So, so when people are recorded in, in a document as so-and-so, um, a tailor or so-and-so, a husbandman. Um, the problem with occupational descriptions, um, well, there's two problems. So, so one is they're very rarely given for women. So it creates an impression that women don't have occupations. Um, the other is that you don't know that someone is actually spending their whole time working in that particular form of work. You don't know what else they're doing. And we know that quite a lot of people, um, for instance, worked in farming as well as having another occupation in this period. And it's hard to quantify that um, just using occupational descriptors. Um, another approach to work has been to concentrate on wage labour. So all the wage series, for instance, um, and um, wage accounts provide very rich evidence about wage labour in this period. But the problem is they're not very representative. So um, wage accounts only survive for um, the wealthiest households, the largest farms, for institutions, for instance. And that leaves like the majority of, of the population. Um, so people working on smaller farms, um, small craft workshops, um, unrepresented. So, um, so I'm not saying that wage labour is unimportant, but rather it doesn't give you a balanced picture of the economy as a whole if you just look at wage labour. And then, of course, there have been studies of particular industries, um, which are very helpful. But um, yeah, it's hard to get a balanced view of what the economy as a whole is looking like. Um, from, from those more specialist studies. So the issues with these existing approaches are sort of, well, for start, where are the women? Often they're, they're not present. You can't see what women are doing. Um, and you're missing the unwaged work, particularly work on small farms. It's not always clear what people are actually doing in their working lives. Um, and you're not getting um, an overview of the whole economy. So the work task approach attempts to mimic modern time use studies by collecting evidence um, effectively of time use and work activities from court depositions. Now, um, I'd love to say that this was my entirely my invention, but it, it's not at all. And there um, have been other studies that have used similar um, methodologies that we're building on. So. Um, Barbara Hanewalt is the first historian I know who used an approach like this, um, looking at uh, medieval peasant families using coroner's inquest. Um, Peter Earl did something very similar to look at women's work in London. Um, 
Hans-Jörg Voff used a similar technique to look at time use in the Industrial Revolution period. And then there have been two um, really excellent books um, in the last 20 years that have used this methodology to look at women's work. So Sheila Ogilvie's work on um, Southwest Germany and um, Maria Orgren and her team in Sweden um, have used this approach to look at um, the Swedish economy. So um, the work I'm presenting today um, is part of the ERC project, um, but it developed out of a Leverhulme project that um, Mark and I worked on. Um, so yeah, that project led to these three publications. So one um, about the nature of work, the critique of approaches to domestic work, um, which was really me thinking about this definition of work and, and how we should approach its history. Um, one that presented our, our findings in the Economic History Review on the Gender Division of Labour, and um, also one by Mark on time use, um, using evidence from the project. Um, so really important there, um, refuting some of the arguments that time use changed radically um, in the 18th century and the Industrial Revolution. Now, when we reached the end of that project, um, Mark and I were, were kind of very much aware that so much more could be done with that data. Um, and we thought about publishing a series of articles, but every time we had we sort of wrote a paper or an article using the data, we had to explain the methodology. And for actually it'd be much easier to do it in a book where we just explain the methodology once, because perhaps people get a bit bored of us explaining methodology all the time um, and yeah there were just so many different aspects of work that we wanted to look at um, so that's why it, it kind of developed into an idea for a book um, but we also felt that we needed evidence from other parts of England so but it wasn't just a study of southwest England but it was more representative of the country as a whole um, so that's what we're doing now. Um, so today I'm going to be showing the, you the evidence from the north of England. We've also collected a data set from eastern England or eastern and east Midlands. Um, and so the idea is that each of these um, regions has, has kind of characteristics that people have argued about in the history of women's work. So that in the north, you get more women working in agriculture, for instance, possibly more women working with textile industries. And then in the east of England, um, with where there's more arable agriculture, that there's been less involvement of women. So we don't know yet because we haven't analysed the eastern. Um, sample yet, but I'm going to be showing you the northern sample today. And it should be said that there's no shortage of evidence to do this kind of research. Um, the main constraint is that it's incredibly time consuming, as I'm sure um, Taylor and Hannah would uh, say if you ask some questions afterwards. Um, so, so we really needed funding in order to carry it out. So I'm just enormously grateful for, to the um, European Research Council for, for funding this and um, giving us resources needed to do the research um, in order to, to write the book. And just to give you an idea of what, what we'll be looking at in the, in the book. Um, so the first half, 
really looks at kind of different aspects of work. Um, so uh, kind of working people themselves and how work varies according to people's gender, age, marital status, occupation. Um, we're going to look at time use and seasonality, and we're going to look at um, what we call space and place. So where work takes place, but also differences between the countryside and towns, um, differences between regions, travel between spaces. Um, and then the, the second half really looks at um, what you might think of as different sectors of the economy. So looking in detail at, at, at some of the processes involved. So I'm going to move on now and start kind of showing you some of the, the data. Um, so we take our um, work task data from three types of courts, um, from the church courts, from the quarter sessions, which are county level criminal courts, um, and from coroner's reports into accidental death. Um, and you can see from the, the first table there um, that the largest number of, of work tasks come from the quarter sessions, the smallest number from the coroner's reports. Um, for the coroner's reports, we're um, borrowing data from a project run by Steve Gunn at Oxford University, looking at accidental death in the 16th century. So we're really grateful to Steve and his team for letting us use that data. Um, so you can see that the, the court evidence from the quarter sessions makes up more than half of the data set. Um, the, the evidence from the church court slightly less. Um, that's not so equal amounts of um, sort of evidence survive in terms of um, um, the amount of um, surviving material from those courts. But we find that church courts, um, what we call the hit rate, so the number of, of work tasks recorded per case is much lower in the church courts than in the quarter sessions, making the church courts much more time consuming to collect evidence from. And Hannah, who's been in charge of, of collecting that evidence in this stage of a project, has found that the hit rate has varied from between less than 1% um, for some um, court books that she's looked looked at to, to quite high, to, to 100% or more for, for others, but unfortunately rather rarely. So it's much more erratic and it seems to just depend on what different clerks chose to write down. So the level of detail, whether they're just summarizing what people said or whether they're actually kind of work, writing it down more, more like a kind of verbatim record. Um, the quarter sessions evidence is a bit more straightforward in the way it's presented. Um, but um, the, the second table there shows you why we've persisted in using the mixture of courts rather than just going with the quarter sessions, which might be a bit easier. So we, we also record um, in the database the relationship of a work task to the um, court case that it's taken from. And we classify that according to whether it's integral i.e. very closely related to the court case, related, as in related in some way, but not very closely, or completely incidental to the court case. Um, so to give you an example, um, 
there's lots of cases of stolen sheep in southwest England in particular. Um, and so you get quite a lot of cases of people butchering stolen sheep. So we don't record the theft of the sheep as a work task, but we would record butchering the sheep. Um, and it means that butchering sheep is massively overrepresented in, in that data set. But we, those are marked as um, integral so that we know that they're closely related to the case. And we can take them out of the analysis if we need to. Um, in terms of, uh, so related cases would be, I don't know, so if someone's describing agricultural work and it's part of a tithe case, um, so clearly they were asked to describe agricultural work because of a type of case, but the work is not a crime in any way. It's not, um, it's not really connected to the case in that sense. And incidental are like the, the ones that I gave you in the, the case that I read out. So where you just have someone, um, you know, who happens to be recorded doing something um, when something else happens. Um, so I think in an ideal world, you'd just use the incidental evidence, but in practice, that would just be so time consuming, we'd, we'd end up with very few cases. And even when, when um, the work tasks are integral to the court case, that still provides really useful evidence about the gender division of labor. I mean, it doesn't make any difference if um, the butchering of sheep was being done um, because the sheep was stolen you still get an account of who's doing that and who's cooking the sheep and you know um so so you can still use use that evidence so here is um our total data set as it currently stands um with the worked house from the southwest and northern england um, together. Um, so you can see that we've um, we've got a total of um, just under 7,000 work tasks recorded in the database. And then we've divided them into these 10 categories, like the 10 main sort of types of work. And here I'm showing you um, that divided into work tasks undertaken by men and, um, and by women. And you can see that work tasks undertaken by women form 29% of the overall data set. Now, because we're including all types of work, including care work and housework, um, if we took that as a representation of the amount of work women were actually doing, that would be saying that men are doing like 71% of work and women are doing 29% of work, which doesn't make any sense. That's like saying women have more leisure time than men. And we know from comments made during the period and also um, studies of, of societies based on small scale agriculture, that actually it's normally true that women do more work than men, slightly more from, from modern time use studies. Um, so, um, so we go through a process of adjusting the figures to compensate for that under recording. And we adjust them so that um, making the assumption that women did at least 50% of the work tasks, um, which involves 
multiplying each task undertaken by a woman by 2.44, but not, not that that really matters. But it's 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 to even it up and make this assumption that we must have done at least 50% of work tasks. And that gives us the final column there um, when you've done that adjustment. Um, now, I personally think the adjusted figures are more accurate than the unadjusted figures. What the unadjusted figures reflect is the fact that more men than women gave evidence in early modern courts. And that, um, and we can show this with our data, that men are much more likely to describe male work tasks, just as women are more likely to describe women's work tasks. Um, so what we're doing is adjusting um, to correct that, that bias in the early modern courts. So if you look at those figures there, you can see that um, women are undertaking over a third of agricultural work tasks, the great majority of care work and housework, um, just over a third of um, transport-related tasks, and kind of getting on for half, but slightly below half of the tasks in commerce, crafts and construction, um, and food processing. Um, and around half the tasks of management. So management is a category which includes people arranging work and also people arranging um, credit and um, various financial transactions. So here I've compared um, the Southwest data set with our new data set from the north of England. Um, so the Southwest consists of um, just a little bit of evidence from Cornwall, lots of evidence from Devon and Somerset, and quite a bit from Wiltshire and Hampshire. The north consists of um, data collected from Cheshire, Lancashire, Yorkshire and um, County Durham. What we find is the percentage of female work tasks is almost exactly the same in the two regions. So exactly 29% in the Southwest, 29.1% from the North. Um, so the same bias about um, preferring male witnesses um, operates in both regions. Um, and if we look at the, the figures, I mean, really, the most remarkable things about these figures when, when we first looked at them is just how similar they are. So we were, I mean, it would be more exciting if we found some great regional difference. And I certainly thought that um, the percentage of women working in agriculture would be higher in the north. And also that we might get higher participation in textile production and therefore the crafts and construction category would be um, would show more women, but not really. I mean, the differences are, are minimal. And in fact, the one category that looks quite different is commerce. So commerce is anyone buying or selling anything um, or people recorded as going to market or working in a shop or in a market stall or, or fair. Um, and that's showing... Um, significantly less participation by women in the north of England than in the southwest, and we've got no idea why that is. 
as yet. Um, so that's going to be something that we're going to have to look at quite carefully. I think the only um, theory I have is it might be about um, having to travel longer distances to get to market, but I'm not sure. Or it might be, um, so I should have said, so um, So I'm showing you two different things here. So the, the last two columns are showing you the percentage of work tasks done by women with the adjusted figures. But the two middle columns are showing you the composition of the data set. So what percentage of the work tasks fall into the different categories. And if you look at that, you can see that there's less commerce recorded for the north of England than for the southwest of England. So it's, there's something different about the way the way either it's being recorded or it's actually taking place that we need to, to look at carefully. But apart from that, um, the two samples are actually remarkably similar. Um, the, the other category is different, but that's just a, um, I don't think that's very significant. <laughs> it's just a category we put um, tasks in that, that don't fit in the other tasks, in the other categories easily. Um, so yeah, I was really excited about doing this analysis, but now I've done it, as it happened, you know, you end up, oh, I have to explain why it's the same rather than why it's different, which is kind of more difficult. Um, but yeah, perhaps we can come back to that in the discussion. Um, and here I've looked in, looked at some um, specific tasks that we can focus on and, and, and look at the gender division um, of workers doing these tasks. Um, there's no big surprises here, but I still think it's quite interesting to look at. Um, so. Milking, as we would expect, dominated by women, but there are some men doing milking. It's not completely exclusively female. Um, reaping crops using a, a sickle. Um, so that's, um, as we might expect, more evenly um, divided between men and women, um, but quite interesting to see reasonably high female participation in. in like classic harvest work. Um, mowing is very different. So mowing is um, mowing hay or, or crops with a scythe, and that is exclusively male. So we have no examples of women mowing. Um, shearing sheep is one of my favorite ones. So um, there are a few kind of anecdotal examples of women working as um, sheep shearers that I'd known about before, but they actually come through quite strongly um, in the work task data, particularly in Devon, um, women working as sheep shearers. Uh, spinning, almost exclusively female, just a couple of, of men recorded. Uh, weaving, the other way around, so almost exclusively male. Um, doing the laundry, almost exclusively um, female and the, the one case we have of a man doing something that might be described as um, laundry he's washing a bag in rather suspicious circumstances so I'm not sure it's a very typical example um, and then um, driving carts is quite an interesting one because that's one where it's 
predominantly male, but there are examples of women driving carts, just as sometimes you find examples of women plowing. Um, and I think that's a good example of a type of task. You know, if you looked at wage accounts, women are never employed as carters. Um, I've never seen them described as driving a cart on a large farm um, when you get women paid by the day and they describe what tasks they're doing. Um, but in the practicalities of kind of perhaps smaller farms, it was sometimes necessary for women to drive carts and they did so. So this table, um, let's just look at where work was taking place. And, and I guess the, the kind of question behind this was that so much of the literature from this period insists that women worked inside the house and men worked outside. And, you know, is this actually the case? Um, so we, I'm denied about how to analyze this and what definitions to use. And it's actually quite a tricky issue. And what we went with in the end was um, inside, in this case, means inside your own house, garden and farmyard. Um, so if you're working inside someone else's house, that counts as outside. Um, but if it's the house that you live in, so if you're a servant and you live in that house and you're working inside it, then that counts as inside. Um, and the other issue with this analysis is quite a lot of work tasks end up as unspecified and there's insufficient evidence to, to say. Um, and I think it's easier to be quite clear that some tasks are outside. So I think that category is, is the most kind of secure. And then we have inside is ones which we're definitely inside. And then the unspecified ones, I don't know, um, Taylor or Hannah might want to correct me about this, but I would guess that quite a lot of those unspecified might actually be inside people's houses, but there just wasn't sufficient evidence to record it that way. But anyway, I think what, what's interesting about this is it shows, um, yes, there is a gender difference in the location of work. So a higher proportion of, of men's work is outside than women's work. But in both cases, the majority of work tasks we recorded were outside people's own home. Um, and even things what you, you think must be inside, like housework, um, quite a lot of those tasks were outside. And that's because people went outside to collect water and to um, wash clothes, um, other tasks like that but also that sometimes they would be doing work for other people and therefore they would be, it would be um, perhaps paid work outside their own house. So that's why um, cared work, care work comes up with quite a high percentage that's outside. So it doesn't mean that it's out in the fields, it means it's beyond your own home. So I think, um, yeah, it's perhaps not the easiest um, data to understand in the form that it's presented here, but I think it's some of the most interesting data. Um, and it's really pushing us towards thinking about, um, well, I, I guess reminding us that, um, that the kind of 
distribution of work is very different in this period from how it is nowadays. So nowadays, you know, the home is a place where you don't work. You go out to a place of work to work. In this period, you know, we talk about people working in their own homes. But what we really mean is that their their home was um, the sort of centre of their farm or the centre of their craft business, but it doesn't actually mean they were sitting in their house working. Um, it just means it was um, sort of where their work was organised. Um, so, yeah, I think there's there's kind of lots more that can be done with this data. Um, and again, that's perhaps that's something we can talk about in the, in the discussion. So here um, I'm presenting data about occupations and, and status descriptions. Um, so, you know, this is one of the approaches to work that I kind of dismissed at the start of the paper, but I still think it's really interesting to look at. Um, so these are people who are undertaking work tasks to have a um, description attached to them in, in the document. Um, and we collected these as well as the evidence of the work they were actually doing. So it gives you an idea of the, the kind of social spread of the people we're looking at. Um, but it also very clearly shows the problem um, with using women's um, descriptors, but they're almost entirely about marital status rather than about work. Um, although, you know, being described as a servant is saying something about your work. It, it's saying you're an employee, um, but it doesn't describe what you actually do. Um, and then perhaps the most common um, occupational descriptor for women is midwife, um, which certainly describes a skill that some women had, but not necessarily um, a full-time occupation. Um, and really you have to get down to ale cellar where we only have six examples, but we know many more women than that sold ale. It's just as, you know, they're more likely to be described as a wife or, or a widow rather than by their work. Um, if you look at the men, um, you can see the dominance of uh, agricultural occupations. So husbandmen, yeomen, and then the term agricola, which appears in the, in the church courts. Um, um, in, in Latin, obviously, and we don't know what the obvious translation of that is, so that they could be a husbandman or a yeoman. Um, and then, but you also have these very general terms like servant or groom, which is sometimes used as an alternative for servant, labourer, workman, um, titles that don't tell you what someone's actually doing. Um, and then you move moving down the tables so that there's you start to see the, the most common um, specialist occupations, um, butcher, tailor, weaver, smith, carpenter, and so on. Um, so I've just given the 10 most common, obviously. Yeah, there's lots of detail about, about male occupations. So the really interesting thing is then to compare these descriptors to what people with these titles actually do. Um, so here I, I've used, um, so free female descriptors, servant, wife, and widow, which perhaps represent different stages of the life cycle for women to an extent. Um, and then um, four different 
uh, male descriptors reflecting different forms of employment. So if we look at the, the women, um, so the really interesting thing is, uh, well, for a start, they are different. Um, and it's the servant who is doing most agricultural work and most housework. So it's not married women doing all the housework. Um, married women, you would guess from, from this table, are where they can, employing a servant and getting the servant to do um, that type of work so that they can dedicate themselves to um, more skilled or responsible forms of work, such as commerce, um, crafts to an extent, um, and management or um, sort of overrepresented, if you like, for for uh, for wife. And then um, care work is interesting as well. So, um, and I think it reflects the fact that a lot of the care work we're recording is actually quite skilled medical work. Um, and that clearly um, seems to become more common um, the older women get. Um, If we look at the, if we look at the men, um, again, quite interesting. So you would expect, um, so the first one is husbandmen, so a, a kind of family farmer, small farmer, um, as you would expect, agricultural tasks feature as the most common type of task. Um, but commerce, also very important. Transport, also important. And that reminds us that farming is not simply about sort of going out in the field and plowing or, um, you know, looking after your sheep. It is involves, um, in this period, um, transporting goods to the market and selling them. Um, and that's actually very time consuming. We get to see what servants and laborers were doing on average. So quite a lot of agricultural work, um, also quite a lot of commerce, quite a lot of transport. And, um, and then finally, I, I used the example of a weaver there for a, a more specialist craftsman. So as we would expect, the, the largest category of work task is in crafts and construction so almost certainly related to cloth production but agriculture is almost as important um so you know this is clearly this isn't a specific person this is an aggregate of all the weavers that we've we've recorded but i think it's still showing us that when someone has a, a occupational descriptor like weaver or tailor or carpenter it doesn't mean um, that they're not doing other types of work and then finally I, I just wanted to say a bit about so I've shown you loads of tables of data and I know it can be a bit tedious for people who don't like um, quantitative data. Um, I just wanted to reassure you that there are other ways of using the information we've collected to look um, in detail at particular types of tasks. And I've just used an example um, of a type of farming because I'm going back to my roots as a, a agricultural historian. Um, 
And so here I'm just giving the example of, um, of sheep and sheep husbandry. Um, so when you look at the people working with, with sheep, um, most of the work is done by men, but then there are specific tasks that women are involved in. So I've already talked a bit about shearing sheep, um, also washing sheep, as illustrated in this lovely um, picture here. Um, so it almost exactly represents what the data we've collected almost exactly um, correlates with that picture where there's two men and a, a woman working at washing sheep. Um, and the other interesting thing, when you look at the cases that relate to women working as sheep shearers, um, is this isn't women um, working on their own farms, shearing their own sheep. They're actually doing it as paid work and, and the evidence is quite specific that they're working for other people, um, shearing a significant quantity of sheep. So perhaps not what you'd find on very large scale um, gentry sheep farms, but, but still um, not an insignificant form of work. Um, so I think in terms of writing the book, we're going to be doing much more of kind of delving into particular um, cases where we can pick up some of this detail and using that alongside the, the kind of overview data that I've been showing to you on the, on the previous slides. So just to sum up um, about the kind of advantages and disadvantages of this approach to the history of work. Um, well, in terms of advantages, I mean, a massive advantage is it does provide evidence of women's work and, and forms of women's work that otherwise we have very little record of. And it also provides evidence of unpaid work in farming and craft households, which are very difficult to get at with other methodologies or types of documents. It's very rich in evidence of, of buying and selling. So um, commerce at its most kind of petty level of people going to market to sell a few things and buy a few things. It's also rich in contextual evidence about workers, about the timing of work, about workspaces and locations. And I think it does allow us to create something that we could call a, a new history of work, a new approach um, to the history of work in this period, and one that's very closely aligned to, to the history of everyday life. So what, what were people actually doing um, during this period? But there are disadvantages, um, and I think it's important to recognise those uh, as well. So um, from our point of view, the big disadvantage is it's just very time consuming to collect this evidence. You know, we'd, we'd love to have like even higher figures about the number of work tasks we've collected, but the fact is it's just extremely time consuming. But um, you have to read through pages and pages of manuscript documents um, to, to pull out this evidence. And um, women are still underrepresented. So we need to adjust the figures to compensate for women's um, underrepresentation. Um, some people are quite happy with that methodology. Other people I've come across are less happy with it. So, um, so it means the data is not as straightforward as, as we might hope it would be. 
Um, another criticism is that um, the nature of the crimes and the courts um, can have an effect on the evidence collected. So we think we've mitigated against that, but then, you know, it'd be possible to, to argue um, that, you know, the evidence is always going to be affected by the context in which it was written down originally. And then a final um, disadvantage, which has only become kind of apparent the more we've, we've kind of worked on this, and that's a, a kind of, we can't use this data easily to look at change over time. And I'm, I'm beginning to wonder if regional difference is similarly, it's not coming through. And, and I think the reason for this is because we're looking at work tasks, but we've gone down to that kind of minute level. And in terms of change over time, the nature of work only changes at that level fundamentally when we hit industrialization and the technology of work changes and then the nature of work to us is really transformed that's not to say work isn't changing in, in quite important ways during the early modern period but it's about um sort of a reorganization of who's carrying out particular tasks rather than the actual tasks themselves changing um, so i'm and i'm wondering whether that's also flattening out the regional difference as well. It effectively kind of flattens out some of the specialization of people in particular occupations because we're just looking at the tasks. So yeah, that's everything I had to say. So thank you for, for listening. Thank you very much. Right. Thank you very much. That was really interesting and lovely to see the data. I would have, would have thought that it would be quite reassuring to find that it's the same, very similar in the north. And because it suggests you're not doing anything wrong. <laughs> if it was really different, that would probably be just as worrying, wouldn't it? <laughs> in some ways. Um, can, can people put their questions um, for the team in the Q&A box? I'll start. Uh, just to get the most tedious question out of the way, because <laughs> um, I'm really interested in the, the database. So presumably you've got three different sets of three different types of court records um, and one type of database. So what type of database is it and how did you is, it, is there a challenge in terms of pulling the same kind of data out of different sets of records or are they really sort of similar? And um, and I suppose related to that. What happens to the data afterwards? So is this going to be something that other people can search or is that not something you're going to do? Is it to be published in a book and just and just that format? Anybody who wants to wants to answer the, the tedious question. <laughs> well, I'll start, but maybe um, Mark or Taylor might want to add something. So um, so we collect it in such a way that it all goes in the same database. So it's all kind of standardized. Um, and in terms of, so we will deposit the database open access when we finish the project so other people will be able to use it. And it, it's just an access database. So um, it's in access. So it should be quite easy for other people to navigate because um, it's just a, a fairly ordinary platform. I don't know if you want to add anything, Mark. Um, yeah, I think just just to so it's, yeah, it's a it's a Microsoft Access database and it will be available to people. I think the reasons why we 
it takes a certain amount of learning what's what's in there and what isn't and what's recorded before you can sort of safely draw conclusions from it. And I think that's one of the reasons why we didn't we decided not to kind of go in the direction of a big kind of digital humanities online database. Partly that's a different project with different needs, different funding, different expertise. Um, but there's also quite a complicated set of guidelines about how things are recorded and what's recorded. So it would be quite possible to extract data from the database and draw the wrong conclusions from it if you don't necessarily understand what has and hasn't been recorded in the first instance. Um, so the, the, the database will be available, but it will come with a quite extensive document of <laughs> sort of fiddly guidelines about, about what we've included and, and what we haven't that will also need to be be studied. So it won't be it won't be as user friendly as um, as you might hope, I guess. Okay, okay, that's that's great. Um, I think Jane Olmar is here and has a question and is is going to actually ask it herself. So that's great, <laughs> Jane. I think you're unmuted. I hope you can hear me, uh, Susan. Yeah, uh, that was I... a fantastic talk and absolutely delighted to hear about the project. It's so exciting. Um, I have really a question with three parts. The first relates to the 1641 depositions, which of course have been digitized. Um, there's about 8,000 of the depositions, very much relating to the 1640s. About 959 of them are given by female deponents. So I'm interested in, in, in the ones given by women because, uh, I mean, there's so much detail there on work <laughs> and, and you could apply your methodology so interestingly to the depositions as it is about a third of those 959 actually state the occupation of their husband, but it's also very clear to get a sense of their occupation from the context. So I suppose my first question is, have you thought about actually looking at the depositions, which are primarily by Protestants and primarily by Engl you know, English migrants, sometimes first-generation English migrants? Mm -hmm. so, so that's the first question. The second question relates to are your documents signed? Because of course the depositions, the woman either signs or leaves her mark. And I'm wondering if you're using um, uh, evidence of, of, of signature in any way in terms of correlating that with what you're doing around work. And then the final question relates to technology. And Mark, I've just been listening to what you were saying about your database, but could, and, and I really appreciate how time consuming this is because as I said, I've been slogging through the depositions manually, but technology does, I think, offer tremendous opportunities here. And I'm just wondering if you are thinking about how you might use technology to actually um, do at least some of this um, uh, 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 using natural language processing or some other uh, 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 using technology smartly. So, but again, it's fabulous. And 7,000 tasks is a lot of tasks. So uh, <laughs> I, 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 you've, got, you've got my true, uh, uh, you know, I, I mean, it's just amazing. So thank you. Thanks, Jane. Thanks. Um, yeah, it's really interesting to, to hear about the 1641 deposition. So I didn't realise that they contain lots of evidence of, of that type. Um, so potentially, yeah, you could you could carry out this kind of analysis using using that data set, um, which would be quite exciting. So it'd be really nice to know, yeah, what people were doing in Ireland. Um, 
and and I know that the kind of links between Ireland and Southwest England were very strong in that period. You you see a lot of people moving backwards and forwards, so it'd be quite interesting to know whether work is different in the two places or not. Um, I'll leave Mark to say something about signatures in a moment. Um, but um, in terms of uh, using technology to transcribe, basically, um, so I've been working on, on looking at this for another potential project, um, and the technology is still kind of being developed. So I, I've been trying to... Um, yeah, get a project with the National Archive looking at wills um, using Transcribus, which is a handwritten text recognition um, platform uh, to to transcribe those um, digitally. I don't think the technology is developed enough for the type of documents we've been using, many of which are extremely badly written, partly damaged. And I mean, so yeah, the church courts were often um, very hard to read and the quarter sessions were all tied up in little bundles in many cases and like um, very kind of diverse formats. So I think in the future, hopefully people will be able to do research like this much more quickly, but I don't think the technology is quite there, certainly not in time for us. I don't think Taylor and Hannah would be pleased if I turned around and said, oh, I just realised we could have done this much easier way. <laughs> you just have to put it in a machine and transcribe it. Um, but, yeah, hopefully sometime in the future people will be able to do that and, and expand the data sets being used for this type of research. Um, Mark, do you want to talk about signatures? Yeah, um, yeah so... Uh, a good number of the documents are signed um, the church court depositions much more regularly than the court sessions, actually, in the English context. It's fairly rare for people to sign the, the court sessions depositions, though there are some. It's very patchy and, and varied, but we do have a decent, um, we do record the, um, we do record it when, when a, an individual that's done the task has either signed or used a mark. We do record that, so we do have data on the literacy of our of our workers, and we can you know, that that be something we can also look at in terms of is there any kind of notable um, relationship between literacy and, and tasks undertaken? Um, I'm actually working on a, a an article at the moment that that does um, that works with that signature material, taking it in a slightly different direction. Um, but, but I'm interested in. The, the sort of a relationship between literacy and, and, and skills and kind of practical um, sort of pragmatic literacies, as, as medievalists would call it, but ways in which individuals have sort of forms of literacy that are not fully fledged reading and writing skills, but um, are skills that are useful in everyday life. So lots of deponents will sign with things like initials or tools or distinctive marks that are not full signatures. They're not fully, they're fully writing their own name. Um, and these kinds of marks and, and um, initials and so on also turn up in lots of the depositional material that people are using to mark their goods, they're using them to mark their sheep, and they're using them in lots of practical senses as well. So we, we, are, um, we, we are doing something with the signature material that we've got. I'm conscious that the 1641 
um, depositions are, are also very good for this because I'm, 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 I'm the, for, in, in the moment I'm using this kind of sample of material from from our project, but I am interested going forward in in trying to do something comparative with what I found. And the, the, the 1641 depositions are on my uh, are on, on my list for of other data sets to potentially look at for, for signatures. There's another, th thanks, um, Mark. There's another um, question, which is kind of similar. Rachel Stone's also interested in, in sort of comparisons. So um, Rachel wants to know, are your overall categories the same as Maria Agren's, right, for Swedish data? And will you be able to do comparisons? Um, I seem to remember Swedish women did more driving cars. <laughs> <laughs> so um, so with the Women's Work Project, we did a we did a comparison with the Swedish data. Um, so our, our categories are actually different. Um, we looked at using, so we, we've worked quite closely with their project and we looked at using the same categories, but they have slightly different criteria. And um, so we end up going with our own categories, but the data set's not so large that you can't rework it to make it comparative with, with um, other studies. Um, and, and we did do that. Um, in the economic history review article to to compare them, um, but I have to go back and look at the women driving carts in more detail. <laughs> that's that's potentially very exciting, then, is it? Because you're suggesting that this really could be a model that's interoperable in that way that lots of other European countries, for example, could plug their data in like the yeah, that quite quite easily. Into this. Yeah, no, I mean, I think you know this type of data exists over kind of a wide area, I mean, other parts of the world, you can use this methodology to get at, you know, this, yeah, the nature of work. Um, and I think that'd be, it'd just be really exciting if people started doing it in a bunch of other other countries and, and time periods and you get a much, much clearer sense of what is actually different and what's the same um, across, you know, a wider area. Can I ask beyond the um the, the court records? Because I think Jane, you mentioned before household accounts. Are there other records that you can use as well, or do they not fit into this database? They're sort of a different, a different project. Mm. So um, you know, the the uh, ERC project as a whole, I've been looking at household accounts to look at waged work, um, but not not for this part of a project. So I think in in the book. Um, in some places we'll have comparisons between what you can get from um, from wage accounts compared to what what we get because I think that comparison is interesting but it's not an integral part of sort of this bit of a project um, but I but I am doing more work on on that as well. That's really interesting and Mark could you say something I just picked up at the start um, that example that Jane gave where there was a woman at a well for two hours uh, wasn't clear whether she was washing clothes for two hours or chatting to her friend for, for two hours but could you say just a, a little bit because Jane mentioned the time aspect of it a few times and it'd be nice to hear just a bit more about what that two hours might mean or how you might use that sort of data. Yeah so um, in, a, in a, probably about 10% of the work activities in the database that the witnesses give us the time at which an activity took place. Um, the way we've used that, so in, in, in the article that I've done and, and probably in what we'll do following up on that in the book, um, we've the information about duration, which is, is in that specific instance, is less forthcoming. 
So more often that you'll have somebody saying, you know, uh, it, was 10, it was between 10 and 11 o'clock in the morning, I was doing X activity. So we can say that activity was taking place at, say, 10 o'clock in the morning. Um, it's less common that witnesses tell you how long they spend doing specific tasks. That's useful information when we have it, but it, it's, it, it's, it's far less common. So what, what, do we, what I did in, in the article was to, to just look at the distribution of, of tasks um, in relation to the kind of times given at which they were taking place, more to try and recreate a sense of um, work, common working hours. So if you're finding lots of work activities reported for you know, certain hours um, and of you are reported for other hours, then you can make an argument that those are those are working hours, you know, which ones are working hours and which ones are not. Um, and of course, you can do similar things with days of the week as well. So we'll be looking at um, you know, and have already looked at things like the idea of a Saint Monday. Um, do you find, um, and even looking at Sundays as well, do you find fewer work activities reported uh, on those days and times? So what, what we found with the times in, in, in the original data set was that um, you actually get something, there's a very clear concentration of work activities in what you might think of as regular working hours, so from roughly 8am to about 5pm, um, a, a drop off at, at, at what would be conventionally lunchtime, um, and then a drop off again in the evening, although certainly not a kind of complete dropping off at evening, it's still an important time of work, but not as intense as, as the other hours. So you get a sense that actually there is a kind of fairly regular rhythm and, and a fairly set notion of what working a number of working hours per day, rather than the kind of picture of a very erratic um, work rhythms that have often been suggested as sort of before industrialization, work is very hit and miss, there are intense periods and down periods, and that you have a very kind of erratic working day. But that the, 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 our material suggests that that's not that's not so much the case. That actually, um, you may not be bound by the factory clock, but most. Most households seem to be kind of putting in a working day that looks broadly similar to a modern working day. That's remarkable, isn't it, to get that sort of level of detail on rhythms of life from, a, from an account like that? Incredible. Maybe just, um, I can't see any other open questions, but maybe one for, for Taylor. Um, Taylor, is there anything particularly interesting you came across? You're at the cold face of the, of the records. Any particularly interesting tasks or anything that surprised you in terms of what women or servants were doing? We just want we want to hear the scandalous ones, basically. <laughs> I mean, one of the great things about this project is getting to work with these types of sources, these depositions, which um, are just incredibly rich. You know, they are these little vignettes of a sort of life, and um, it's just the fact that you you know you get these sort of sometimes it's uh, a lot of sheep theft, you know, you get quite a lot of that, but then you do get very interesting and sort of scandalous um, sort of cases. But then the more detailed um, a sort of deposition is, the more likely you're gonna find work activities in it actually. And it just sort of shows how much, you know, work is just interwoven into every aspect of life. And the, you, know, so you can't really escape it. And um, so, you know, there was a, quite a sad case of um, in, about a child that had died and it was sort of an investigation of whether the father had sort of been, um, had been a part of the child's death. And you get within that account, sort of uh, descriptions of care activities where the sort of grandmother is holding the child and taking care of the child while, you know, passing it off to the mother. And then after the child's died, you know, sort of the comforting of, 
the mother and things like that. So I just one thing from this project is that I want to convey to people is just how great these sources are and how much you can, can get from them and the sort of wide variety of kind of um, analysis you can do both quantitative and qualitative. That's a, that's a yeah, really good example. That's incredible. And once once the north of England is done, are you moving on to another area or is that is it just two comparative areas? So we've finished the north, but and we've also got an eastern sample as well, which I've, we've just finished. So now we're going to be excited to, to kind of pull all that data together and look at the, the whole sample, the, you know, north, southwest and east together and compare them. You know, maybe there are some differences between east <laughs> and north and southwest. So it might be just like north and southwest. We'll see. You hope so. You'd be disappointed if it's the same, <laughs> if it's the same again. That's great. I don't think there's any more um, questions, but that was uh, really, really interesting and really nice to see that it's it's coming together so so well, um, and that you still managed to keep working despite COVID. Um, so well done on on that and, and on such great publications too. Um, and just thank you very much for for joining us today and sharing it with us. We'll all there's a there's a great website. So if anybody wants to follow um, along, there's a blog as well, isn't there? Um, of, of for the project so i'm sure people can follow your follow your activity as you as you go so thank you again very much um for joining us today and just to let everybody know um next week um andrew snedden from ulster is uh, talking about micro history creative collaborative public history the early modern witch trials so hopefully we'll see um see everybody at that uh, again next week so thanks again everybody the hub is a thank community you. thank you and print cultures stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the time of the year library as well as being heard the hub is a space contemplating ireland through the communities created by the world the hub is about impact the hub is for everyone Here's to the next 10 years.